Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Cholley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, Monday, Thursday, 10 to 1. Thanks for all the nice messages and tweets and things about the podcast this week. Um, I'm not sure if you've all gone back to work. We've all suddenly uh, re-engaged, which is very good. I think it helps that yesterday's PMQs was uh, quite the blockbuster. Um, hello today to Norway, Samson Chetland. Apologies for my pronunciation. Uh, he gets in touch to say, I may not listen to the podcast in a very exotic location, mostly my Mazda people carrier with heaps of children on board whilst doing the school run in suburbia, but I represent the international readership, in inverted commas, and want to express gratitude. Uh, Samson teaches British politics and history in Norway, and he says, I steal and borrow most of my super well-informed and original ideas from your podcast. Thank you very much for that, Samson. Um, I slightly worry for the future of Norway, if that is the basis of the education system. But uh, anyway, if you want to get in touch, let me know where you're listening. Uh, email me, matt.chorley at times.radio, and uh, I'll say hello to you on the podcast next week. Uh, right, coming up in our big thing this weekend, Sunday, May the 2nd, marks exactly 10 years since the death of Osama bin Laden. And that extraordinary moment when Barack Obama announced the successful mission to the world. Well, 10 years on, I've been speaking to William Haig, the British Foreign Secretary at the time, Anthony Lloyd, the Times war correspondent, uh, Colonel Simon Diggins, a former defence attaché at the British Embassy in Kabul, and Dr Julie Norman, an expert in global foreign policy from UCL in London. So that's coming up in just a moment. But first, as ever, our columnist panel, James Marriott's not here. He's off revising for his GCSEs or something. So instead, we've got India Knight and Tom McTague from The Atlantic. Uh, let's talk about gossip. And uh, There's a really interesting column from Laura Freeman today, where she said that we're basically all missing out on gossip uh, as a result of the last 12 months. And it's a real thing. Uh, and, you know, whispering even two metres apart is tricky. We've all tried to do it. Um, uh, and I just wonder where, what you think about this, uh, India, first of all. Are you missing missing gossip? Yes, I am missing gossip. Um, it's a lovely piece by Laura Freeman. I really enjoyed reading it. I am missing gossip. Mm, I'm reading at the moment. Well, I'm not really reading. I put it in the downstairs loo and then I promoted it, actually, to the sitting room. Chips, Channon's diaries, which have, were recently published in a new, unexpurgated uh, version edited by Simon Heffer. And he's the king of gossip. And I was thinking that there was probably a golden age round about mm, starting in about 1920, ending in about 1950, um, where gossip was, you know, proper currency because you had to, of course, obviously there was no social media uh, and you had to wait to see the person to impart the gossip. Um, and today I think gossip, you know, we all gossip all the time. We gossip by text, we gossip by things. So yes, I totally get the, I do miss gossiping in person, but I think the heyday of gossip is probably gone. 
Now, uh, Tom, I've not seen you in person since last summer, I don't think. We, and, you know, we like we like a gossip occasionally. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it's not the same, is it? I mean, much as it's fun in, in a WhatsApp group, it's just not the same as sort of doing it in person, slightly conspiratorially. And, you know, one person offers up a bit of gossip, which reminds you of something else that you heard. And that's basically, you know, what what how how you while away an evening and then realise the next day, I don't know what we talked about, but it's just... <laughs> and then you meet someone else and you start remembering those nuggets of gossip and they all get slightly embellished and passed on. Yeah, I mean, two two journalists getting together for lunch and, and gossiping. I can't believe. No, I can't believe. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that, 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 and they were they were great, right? And then you know, you and I have had conversations on the phone, and you think I don't really have anything to tell you. Like I'm I'm sat in my bedroom again on my computer again. I haven't seen anyone for a long time. I don't I don't I don't know anything. I don't know anything about what's going on. And you're right. It's kind of. That's the thing that keeps things going, doesn't it? What's happening at the Times? What's happening at the Atlantic? You know, oh, have you seen this person's moved? Oh, there's a job, you know, vacancy there. There's this happening there. That's all kind of gone, or it feels like it's gone. It's very, very dull. And I, I wonder as well whether um, the sort of the, by being in person. Um, uh, particularly uh, when you're working as a journalist, going to Westminster, which I've, you know, I mean, I've, I've not done that for a few weeks now. When you do go there, there's nobody there. And uh, the beauty of, of that human interaction is you bump into someone, oh, how are you? Oh, not bad. Oh, you'll never guess what so-and-so's done. Whereas it's very difficult to just do a ring round of MPs mm. when you're basically saying, do you want to tell me any gossip? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a very weird conversation to have, India. Yeah, it just goes to show it really oils. Quite, I'm really sorry about the, my dishwasher gurgling massively in the background. Um, oh, it, you can have a word we, with it, Tom because Tom was there when we were talking. <laughs> we were talking about DIY disasters this week. Tom's had a dishwasher for twelve months and can't use it. That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Anyway, um, go, go well, on. Yeah, oh yes. No. Well, it just goes to show how much gossip oils all of conversation. You know, even people who don't think of themselves as gossips or fans of gossip. Um, what Tom was saying was absolutely right. When you have nothing to impart apart from, you know, a comment on the weather or the state of your carpet or what you watched on telly, I mean, it's thin pickings, isn't it, face to face. Gossip is really what keeps everything moving. I mean, you have to be careful because there's that sort of uncomfortable intersection between gossip and bitching. Um, or, or I mean, Because as you say, things do get sort of, you know, Chinese whispers, things, things evolve. And you, it's often tempting to lob in a completely made-up detail to make the story juicier. And then the thing grows arms and legs. And, yeah, I really miss doing that. Doing that in person is really fun. What, and the, the, the golden moment when somebody starts telling you something salacious and you think, and you end up having to tell, I told you that. And you know it's gone <laughs> right round in a great big circle. And nobody can remember what it's called. Now, one thing I wondered was, do, is, is the fact we are all personally missing out on gossip about our friends and family and colleagues, is that part of the reason why we're all obsessing about the ins and outs of Boris Johnson's uh, private affairs. It's a, sort of the national gossip conversation is over, do we like his wallpaper? Was it worth the money? And who paid for it? That's really interesting. I think so, yes, because good gossip is quite rich in that kind of domestic detail. Yes, I think that's probably true. I just want to see the flat. Why can't we see the flat? Because, you know, I remember, I've seen, I feel like I've seen every other incumbent's um, 
choice of decor and I really want to see the wallpaper. And in fact, if they just opened it up, you know, like they do the National Trust, open it up on yeah. Sundays, you could enter a lottery, go and have a walk around uh, the Boris <laughs> Johnson's flat, admire his cushions or otherwise, and, and then maybe we wouldn't object if the government would pay for it. Um, uh, now, I'm intrigued about wallpaper. Where do you stand on wallpaper, Tom? Oh, I mean, we, we've had some terrible uh, choices over the last few years. In our, in our last house, we we uh, tried to have different coloured paint on the on the walls and it just looked like an appalling kind of child's bedroom. So we've just completely given up and we have um, essentially a cream dream house, it's, you know, <laughs> filled with various pictures on the wall. So we have no wallpaper and basically no colours because we have no creativity. <laughs> Where do you stand on this, India? Paint or wallpaper? It's the big I'm question. Very, I'm very, very team paint. Um, there's a really perceptive um, little item in Janice Turner's notebook today where um, she says that wallpaper, I mean, wallpaper is the road to ruination. You know, wallpaper, you can eat, wallpaper is really expensive. The main thing about wallpaper is it's really expensive. And you, if you don't like it, you're stuck with it because it's really expensive. Paint, you know, you don't like it. You go to B&Q, you buy some more paint, slap it up, done, fine. Um, so wallpaper is the sort of... And also you can't take wallpaper with you, obviously, when you move house. So, you know, maybe buy an expensive sofa or buy an expensive mattress or a thing that is portable, which wallpaper obviously isn't. Um, but you can also, if you sort of look at Interior's websites, you can very quickly become sort of crazed with the idea of wallpaper and convince yourself that, you know, upwards of £200 a roll is not that bad because actually some people are paying £1,500 a roll for cans <laughs> It's bonkers. I always, it's bonkers. I, I always thought the trick with wallpaper was to go to B&Q on sort of successive days and just keep tearing off the samples until you've got enough samples and then you can do your whole wall. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the, the, the slightly frightening thing, it'd, like, it'd be nice to see Boris Johnson's flat, if only because people would then stop sharing the photos which aren't of his flat, which are just by, I think, one of the, the designers, woman. the woman yeah, who's done yeah. it, where the sofa matches the wallpaper. And that strikes me as is, is too much. It's too much. It's very busy. I don't think I could relax in a room like that. Well, uh, she does, Lily Little, these very kind of incredibly grand, opulent interiors. I mean... Yeah, anyway, least said. But um, my, my slight worry is that you'd go into the room and Carrie would also be wearing a dress made from the same fabric and she would just sort of emerge from the wall and you wouldn't even know that she was there. <laughs> <laughs> just creep up behind you. Uh, now, that's probably enough wallpaper. The, the, the texts will start coming in saying, stop talking about wallpaper, even though we are literally just talking about uh, the merits of wallpaper. Um, India, I want to th uh, talk about your column from the um, uh, Sunday. Uh, looking at France and uh, the very different cultural <laughs> norms in France uh, mm. around uh, cancel culture uh, and all that sort of thing. Explain, explain what your argument was. My argument was that cancel culture is an American import based on ideas that originated in France um, 50 years ago um, uh, to do with uh, postmodernism. And so... Now the French are being asked to kind of to swallow that then then postmodernism made its way to America and to American universities. And now it's sort of come back in this. It's sort of been chewed up and spat out and slightly reinvented and come back to France. And France is saying, um, no, thank you. Basically, they're saying and Carla Bruni is particularly saying no, thank you. Carla Bruni, who I'm slightly obsessed by stuck her head up on her Instagram and denounced the whole concept in quite a forceful way. You know, you couldn't imagine 
I don't know, Norma Major. Um, <laughs> well, you could. <laughs> Or, 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 or any of her successes, actually. You couldn't really imagine any um, partner or spouse of a, a British prime minister piping up in that way. And it was quite a kind of, you know, the vocabulary she used was very emotive and very kind of punchy. And she absolutely wasn't having it. And the Philistines had come and they were uncultured. And she was basically saying, you can't laugh at anything anymore and it's a disaster. But really... Any excuse to write about Carla Bruni because she's so fascinating. <laughs> it is brilliant. So, so I'll, I'll quote a bit of it because, um, just because it is so interesting. It says, Things hurt less when we laugh. Little by little, without warning, do-gooders and censorship have taken control. Obsessed by their images, moral guardians, a whole load of people without culture, without experience, without courage, are trying to impose their narrow-minded ideas on us. Their sterile, uniform and Puritan ideas are seeking to invade humanity. If we have the misfortune not to think like them and dare to tell them so, they rush at us all with their dictatorial energy to try to make us be quiet. Humour is quietly disappearing under their moralising speeches. Freedom is in its death throes. Creation is lifeless and democracy in great danger. Actually, Tom, the bit that stood out for me is that humour is quietly disappearing. And actually, people who get cross about the fact that sometimes you find things funny are the worst. <laughs> but you know, you know who she sounds like? Boris Johnson. So I, I think, you know, there's this fantastic argument that Britain voted to leave the EU to become more French. And we have become more French. We are we that we we mm. kind of share that outlook of, you know, we want the humour. We don't want the puritanism. We want the um, the kind of self confidence that we look over the channel and see the French to to write those things and to be like Carla Bruni, and we kind of were aspiring to that. And I, you know, uh, is is Boris Johnson essentially a Gaullist? I think is quite a you know is that kind of like is he like is he left is he right? He's a kind of bit of both. That is really That's interesting. That's fascinating, yeah. In fact, somebody I can't remember who it was. Somebody tweeted this morning saying that basically we we are we are turning into France because we're all sitting outside drinking and the government's embroiled in a funding <laughs> scandal. <laughs> <laughs> which, which also uh, maybe that is maybe we are we are all uh, we are all becoming much more much more French. Um, uh, just just uh, just finally, then looking ahead to uh, next week, uh, are you both gripped by election fever? <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> Not so much in rural Suffolk, uh, where um, the same people win every time. I live in an incredibly uh, Tory bit of the country, and so um, it's hard to get you know particularly exercised about any of it. Well, yeah, more fun if I, there's a proper contest. You are totally right. As, as someone who lives in, I don't think it is anymore, but what, what used to be the most Tory seat in the country... Uh, I sort of applaud uh, the efforts of others, but um, it doesn't seem to have a, a, a make, make a massive impact. <laughs> no. I, I, I live in the People's Republic of Lewisham, uh, so it's uh, you know the complete opposite. I think they just weigh the Labour votes here. India Knight and Tom McTague there. And of course, you can read India in the Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a Times subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, 10 years on from the death of Osama bin Laden. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, cast your minds back 10 years. I can report to the American people and to the world. The United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda, and a terrorist who's responsible for the murder of thousands of innocent men, women, and children. This news will be welcomed right across our country. Of course, it does not mark the end of the threat we face from extremist terror. Indeed, we'll have to be particularly vigilant in the weeks ahead. But it is, I believe, a massive step forward. Cheering in the streets there after the news on the 2nd of May 2011 that the US military had killed the founder of Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, after a raid on a compound where he'd been hiding out near the capital of Pakistan. 25 US naval SEALs were involved in the operation, which saw bin Laden and three others killed. It came almost exactly 10 years after Al-Qaeda carried out the 9-11 attacks on the Twin Towers and the Pentagon in the US, in which nearly 3,000 people were killed and began what was known as the war on terror. So looking back now, 10 years since Osama bin Laden's death, what impact did it have then and since on the Middle East? And what's it like being in the middle of all of that? In a moment, we'll hear from uh, William Haig, Britain's Foreign Secretary at the time, about the moment he was woken in the middle of the night to be told the news that bin Laden was dead. We'll also speak to Simon Diggins, a former colonel in the British Army, who was a military attaché in Kabul, and Dr Julie Norman, an expert in US foreign policy, from University College London. But first, let's speak to Times war correspondent Anthony Lloyd, who knows Afghanistan better than most. Uh, morning, Anthony. Good morning, Matt. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, just explain uh, where you were when you got the news that Osama bin Laden was dead and, and what had happened in the... Because it was such an extraordinary period of 10 years. He was the most wanted man on the planet. Absolutely. So actually, I was in the United Kingdom at the time and I was in bed. It was early hours of the morning and I can't remember whether it was a phone call or, or I think the I think the foreign editor called me and said, turn on the radio now. And I listened to the radio, heard President Obama's voice saying Osama bin Laden had, had been killed. I had a visa for Pakistan. So I got up, got dressed, packed a bag, got a cab, went to the station, flew to Pakistan that day. I was on the ground by Osama bin Laden's house within 24 hours, the house in Abbottabad, which is a few hours' drive out of the Pakistani capital. And what was the scene like when you'd got there? Not very well controlled, actually. I thought there would be uh, loads of checkpoints preventing me from get any, getting anywhere near it, but that wasn't the case. You could go right up. So there was a, a, um, 
a few Pakistani policemen, a few curious locals. There was the uh, rear section of a Black Hawk helicopter, especially modified for special forces operations, which had crashed right at the start of the raid. The pilot, um, I think the rear rotor had clipped the back of the wall. It had gone down. He had, he had nosed the helicopter into the ground fast to stop it from turning over. The actual uh, SEAL team had got out unharmed. There were couple of helicopters involved or several helicopters involved I think it was 79 commandos and one dog who had gone through through the building uh, I think five or six people killed in total including Osama the Americans had taken Osama bin Laden's body away the other bodies had been left in sight um, so when I was there I couldn't go into the house but I could walk around the wall the Americans had burned the helicopter before they left so it was just the, the tail rotor set the tail and, and tail rotor section left um, and the wall itself and it was quite easy to speak to people at the time uh, and move around the outside of the building. As the hours went by and more Pakistani police and military turned up, they started establishing cordons and, and pushing local people and, and journalists away. And of course, one of the most controversial aspects of the uh, operation was that the United States didn't tell Pakistan uh, what they were doing because essentially they didn't trust Pakistan with that information that, that they knew where Osama bin Laden was. Well, there are a number of different stories pertaining to how Osama bin Laden was located there, whether in fact it was the American intelligence operation that located him there and they were worried that if they informed the Pakistani authorities, the Pakistanis would tip off Osama, the Americans were coming for him, or whether actually it may have been Pakistani authorities that tipped off the Americans that he was there in the end. But either way, what is really significant about this moment, it was an amazing historical moment in the war against terrorism. But it should have and could have become a milestone moment in turning operations against terror organisations in a positive direction. That moment has been squandered, so it remains a historical moment. But in fact, it really epitomises one of the kind of, call it decapitation operations, by which I mean American-led special forces taking out leaders of terrorist groups, but failing to capitalise on those those short-term victories with, with the battle of ideas. And so we have a situation now that if Osama bin Laden was alive today, he would be delighted by the state of play. Al-Qaeda has survived his organisation, the onslaught of, of 20 years against it. American troops, exhausted politically and indeed militarily, are on the point of leaving Afghanistan. Uh, Islamic groups, Al-Qaeda-related groups, Islamic State-related groups, uh, are consolidating across the Sahel in sub-Saharan Africa. And it looks like the West has lost the appetite for the war against terrorism. Is it a problem that you think... That because, well, this applies to so many aspects of life, that actually going after the, the big name and all of the resources and emphasis that were put on that, uh, it's, it's a sort of more eye-catching thing. It's what the public wants. It's a sort of sexier thing to be doing. But uh, the sort of the, the slightly more boring... Uh, workman-like process of dismantling a, uh, a, a structure like Al-Qaeda, Al Al was that neglected in the, the sort of the rush to get the man? It was, it was neglected. I mean, let's bear in mind there were 10 years between America going into Afghanistan after 9-11 and killing Osama bin Laden. But successful counter-terrorist strategies is built on a number of, number of things. First of all, it's, it's built on endurance and, and, and the understanding that war against terrorism groups this isn't a war like second world war which is a beginning date and an end date you've got to keep you've got to keep engaged you've got to keep engaged long long term and america and to an extent british strategy has oscillated wildly at various points it's 
have done dramatic special forces operations, which of course the public love. They love the idea of helicopters, night special forces and killing senior bad guys. But actually what, what real success is based on is, is staying engaged. It's about economics, it's about economical equity, it's about supporting of, of human rights and, and institutions of governance within countries so that you undermine the terrorist narrative and undermine the terrorist messaging which is built on, on corruption and Muslim people being oppressed and of inequity. Um, it doesn't mean sending hundreds of thousands in on, of troops in on surge operations and then a few years later being unable to sustain even, even small training missions in countries and, and, and leaving them, such as we're seeing now, um, and leaving the people suddenly in Afghanistan at the mercy of, it uh, looks like, a, a resurgent Taliban. So it's about endurance. It's about, ultimately, the battle for ideas. And the West and the Americans have been very bad at winning the battle of ideas. They have not undermined the key narratives which attract is, uh, supporters to Islamic terror groups. Anthony Lloyd, Times War correspondent, thanks very much uh, for joining us. Always fascinating speaking to uh, Anthony. Really interested to get his uh, take on it. You know, classic war correspondent. You may have heard Anthony was on the show a couple of weeks ago uh, describing, you know, having a bag ready, although he does a bit of his bag. He basically takes far too much stuff, which is reassuring, uh, and got on the ground and headed straight to Abbottabad, the site of where Osama bin Laden was killed. 10 years ago this weekend. But what was it like at the heart of the British government uh, kept in the dark about the uh, operation until after it had happened? Well, I spoke to former uh, former Foreign Secretary William Hague, of course now uh, Times colleague, Times columnist too, uh, and I began by asking him to describe the moment he found out that Bin Laden had been killed. I can remember very clearly when I got the news. I was actually, I was in the Middle East uh, and I was asleep in the in the British Embassy in Cairo um, when I could hear somebody, um, uh, an official standing outside the door, you know, putting a piece of paper under it, wondering whether to wake me up, that sort of thing. Um, so I got up and received the news. And the answer to your question about did the British government know? Well, well, of course, we absolutely knew that the United States was looking for Osama bin Laden and had, after all, offered a, a $25 million reward and so on. Uh, we didn't know exactly where they were in that search. It was very, very closely held secret at the top of the U.S. government that they believed they had located him and were launching an operation. So they didn't inform their allies about that. And who, so you get a note, who do you speak to at that moment in the middle of the night? Do you speak to anyone? Do you sort of digest the news and go back to bed? What do you, what do, you do in that situation? Well, that is, um, that was my private secretary, you know, who had been in turn woken up in the night by the duty officer at the foreign office in um, in London. And, um, well, there, now, of course, there, there isn't any immediate decision to be made when you hear that news, but it is important to know it, um, because there, there can be reverberations around the world. You know, you might have to increase security um, at embassies around the world. Um, you might have to give a reassurance uh, in many countries around the world about how it's being handled. Uh, there might be questions in Parliament. So there are things to consider. There aren't immediate operational decisions about what happened with the killing of bin Laden when another country has carried all that out. But, but you have to think about all of those things um, and appear on the media and uh, explain the UK's position in, in this case to express satisfaction that, um, that um, the world's most wanted 
terrorist had finally met his end. And do you, at some stage, speak to your counterpart? Obviously, Hillary Clinton was the um, Secretary of State in the US. Did do you, do you speak to her at some point in, in the wake of that? Yes, I can't remember exactly when. I spoke to her very frequently anyway, of course. And um, uh, I think by the time when we got the news, it was the uh, it was uh, very late in the United States, um, late at night. As, as morning came in the Middle East, President Obama addressed the his nation and the world at I think like half past eleven at night um, U.S. time. So I don't think I spoke to Hillary Clinton immediately, since it would have been um, um, you know in the, in the middle of the night. But certainly did so shortly afterwards, and the, we all congratulated the United States on the on the operation. We are in the United Kingdom, another country that is familiar with mounting this sort of operation. You know, I, I was involved several times with hostage rescues, for instance, um, in foreign countries, sometimes in hostile um, territory um, or in a country you can't trust. And, and, and the United States decided in this case they couldn't trust the government of Pakistan with the information that they were going to mount an operation on, on Pakistani soil. Um, so we we are familiar with those things and with the military risks, the, the really very serious risks of it all going wrong. Um, the United the Americans did lose a helicopter um, in the course of the um, uh, attacking Bin Laden's compound. Uh, so of course we also expressed our relief that an operation that can so easily be derailed ha- had gone well. You said in the days afterwards that the uh, the death of Osama bin Laden was a devastating but not terminal blow to Al Qaeda. What was at that point? Did you think might happen, uh, and how has that compared to how things have actually unfolded over the last decade? Well, I think in this case, and now when you look back over the last decade, um, what we thought would happen is roughly what has happened. That, that's quite unusual, of course, in <laughs> in foreign affairs and politics. But it, it was it was a huge blow to Al Qaeda, and it showed that um, whatever lengths you go to in the world to hide, in the end, the the technology and the intelligence services of Western countries can find you. They will find you. We will get you. Um, And uh, that sent out a very powerful message. Um, In the years since then, uh, Al-Qaeda and similar organizations haven't managed to organize an, an organized global terrorist network where they can give commands around the world to cells to carry out devastating attacks. We have, of course, seen many terrorist attacks, but they have been much more the work of uh, lone individuals um, or small groups um, inspired by what they believe to be the ideals of al-Qaeda or ISIS, but not actually under under a central command. That has been the general pattern. And so they're taking out the central figure um, did prevent a lot of, uh, of future possible terrorist attacks. And I suppose that's the thing is, it, maybe the, the killing of Osama bin Laden drew a line under this idea of a sort of essential global figurehead. Uh, and so it removed that threat. But then the, the threat has changed, hasn't it, over time as well. Where, just finally, where, where do you see are the greatest threats uh, to Britain uh, today? Well, the greatest security threats uh, to Britain still are uh, terrorist threats. 
Um, and of course, since the death of Bin Laden, an, an entirely different uh, phenomenon arose of, of ISIS, the, the attempt to establish in Syria and um, parts of Iraq an, a, a terrorist-controlled state. Um, and uh, so, the, so that has led to a, a huge further conflict. Um, now that has been destroyed. That was William Hague, uh, the former Foreign Secretary, uh, speaking to me earlier here on Times. But of course, you can now uh, read William Hague in the Times every Tuesday. It's now Times uh, columnist. All the best people are Times columnists. Times Radio with Matt Chorley. Yeah, we're taking a look at uh, the fact it's 10 years since the death of Osama bin Laden, killed on the 2nd of May 2011. Uh, by 25 US naval SEALs uh, who were involved in the operation. Uh, he was found in a compound uh, in the town of Abbottabad near the capital of, uh, of Pakistan. Uh, that operation, of course, came 10 years after al-Qaeda carried out the 9-11 attacks in America and the, the war on terror that followed. Let's speak now to uh, Simon Diggins, a former colonel of the British Army who served as a military attaché in Kabul. Hi, Simon. Hi, good morning, Matt. Uh, nice to have you with us. We've also got uh, Julie Norman, an expert in US foreign policy from the University College of London. Hi, Julie. Hi, Matt. Good morning. Um, so, Simon, where were you when uh, the, this uh, operation was launched uh, 10 years ago uh, this week? Uh, and um, what impact did it have, you know, in terms of uh, the immediate impact and, and subsequently? I was actually serving directly with the United States forces uh, in the Horn of Africa, based in Djibouti. Um, it was a, an operation which had been set up in the light and, and following on from the 9-11 attacks uh, to try and prevent uh, Islamist terrorism from spreading through East Africa. Uh, and our role was primarily focused on building sort of counter-terrorism uh, capabilities amongst the East African forces, very much in conjunction with the African Union uh, and everything everything went with it. Um, and specifically, our, our specific focus at the time was very much around uh, the, the the Islamist terror that was ongoing in Somalia, the Al Shabaab uh, element from from there. Um, the impact was was interesting in terms of the sort of day to day business. Not not much had significantly changed. Um, but what we did notice and, and and was 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 clear was that the if you like the power of the idea. Uh, which by that stage is what really um, Azam bin Laden represented, continued. Uh, Al-Shabaab, for example, were very keen and had been keen that we were aware of for about a year or so to be affiliated with uh, Al-Qaeda. They wanted, if you like, the branding, the, the, the franchise from there. Uh, and so you know, previous speakers have, have talked about the impact of bin Laden. I mean, in terms of active operations from about 2006, he, had, he knew he was a target and so he'd gone quiet. But in terms of his ideas and his ideals, if you like, uh, he's still very potent. And I suppose that's the thing is because he sort of he had you're right because he was he was sort of num, what, the world's most wanted man. He had receded. So to, to, is it the case? Is it too simple to say to some extent whether or not he was alive? Uh, didn't really you know? And at various points, it was reported beforehand that he, he'd been killed, and then it turned out he hadn't. But actually, whether or not he was alive had very little impact on the, the, the spread of al-Qaeda and terrorism? No, because I think that there's, there's something very symbolic about, about, about killing a leader. Um, uh, and bin Laden had been responsible not only for the, you know, one of the greatest terrorist attacks 
uh, against the United States, but it, 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 we should often we should remember um, it's also probably the single most violent terrorist attack against British citizens. The number of British citizens who are killed in the 9/11 attacks is very high as well. So there is something very powerful about about killing a leader like like Bin Laden. So I think that was that that in itself was was not unimportant. But the the origins of the of the um, the insurgency which he'd he'd be able to inspire in various places. Um, the the origins of that were deeper than than simply his personal ideas and everything went with it. So there was an impact, um, but in a sense, it, the, the the he'd been able to focus those ideas. He'd been able to focus the, the some of the discontent that existed in uh, in parts of the Muslim world, uh, and the, the source of those discontent hadn't gone away uh, um, because he had been killed. Let's bring in uh, Julie Norman now from uh, University College uh, London. J- Julie, what was your assessment at the time of the Im- what you thought the impact might be of the death of Osama bin Laden? And, and, and with you know, looking back over 10 years now, has, th- has that actually panned out? Well, Matt, it certainly was momentous. And that was, again, a moment that had been uh, Americans had been waiting for for 10 years throughout the war on terror as the previous speakers have mentioned, a very big symbolic moment for the U.S. and for the Obama administration in particular at that time. I think it's important to remember, however, that even by that point, there was a distinction between al-Qaeda as an organization and al-Qaeda as an idea and a movement. And that idea and a movement, even at that point, was much bigger than bin Laden. And we expected that after his death, it would continue to be bigger than the man himself. And we've seen the way that those ideas have spread through al-Qaeda spinoffs, through al-Shabaab, through ISIS, through Boko Haram, through lone wolf attacks. And so while it was important and highly popular, nine out of 10 Americans approved of the killing and, and wanted to see that happen. Um, again, the ideas and the actions that Osama represented uh, still outlived him and I think continue to this day. Uh, and so in terms of the sort of the long term uh, impact, is it that the, the, his, the Osama bin Laden's death sort of f- fractured? And so we're now, you know, and William Hague was talking about this, that the threats we face now are not part of some sort of global network. It's individuals, in some cases, you know, lone wolf uh, group, uh, individuals, as they're called, um, inspired by rather than sort of dictated to uh, by, by, the, by the sort of network. Is that ultimately where the threat has changed? Well, that's exactly right. And that's actually what we saw in, in the London attacks. Again, uh, you know, even when bin Laden was still alive, these, these attacks that were inspired by uh, bin Laden and by al-Qaeda ideology, if not coordinated by them directly. And that's really continued until today. It's created a real challenge for counterterrorism operations. Al-Qaeda itself was difficult to go after, but it was at least one organization that you could have intelligence trying to trace the correspondence between different members and what have you. The more uh, dispersed that movements are and the more individualized that actions are, the harder it is to have a cohesive counterterrorism approach to prevent or respond to them. And in terms of uh, American foreign policy, it's uh, Joe Biden marks 100 years, 100 years, <laughs> 100 days uh, in, uh, in office uh, today, in fact. Um, how is American foreign policy different or the same to how it was 10 years ago? And where, where, what are the threats that, that are sort of uppermost in Joe Biden's intray right now? Yeah, well, Joe Biden, of course, is focusing mostly on domestic issues for the moment. In terms of foreign policy, he'll be looking to focus mostly on China for the long run. But that 
really requires kind of undoing or uh, taking care of some other issues that have, have been percolating for quite a while for the U.S., including terrorism. And it's one that I don't think is going to go away easily. Biden has already committed to withdrawing troops completely from Afghanistan. Some experts are concerned that that will allow a space for groups like al-Qaeda or ISIS to um, to reconvene or have a haven. It's yet to be seen if that will happen. So counterterrorism will stay on the agenda regardless for the U.S., but Biden is hoping to pivot away to look at bigger issues that are a bit more in line with other kinds of interests for the United States right now. And just uh, finally, Simon Dickens, uh, from a sort of British perspective, we've talked before about uh, a couple of weeks ago about the British decision yes. to bring troops uh, back from Afghanistan. Uh, what is the current you know, British position uh, in terms of you know, our place in the world and, and uh, where we are right now, uh, 10 years on from the death of uh, Osama bin Laden? I, mean, I think we're still very focused on the threat of terrorism um, and where it may, may arise. And I think that that will continue. Um, I think, and we've just seen it with the integrated review, uh, an attempt to try and repurpose what we're going to do, um, not only to deal with terrorism and, and the, the, its affiliates, but of course, back to we're back to sort of state versus state rivalry and being able to to match across the spectrum. So we we are we're in a difficult place. I mean, the, there's uh, I think a welcome uplift in, in terms of resources going into defence and security. Um, but with the US, with its pivot towards Asia, which uh, which Julie mentioned, um, and various other things, uh, is no longer sitting there as kind of the ultimate guarantor of everything that's going on. And I think one of the things that we should be trying to do, but we, you know, we put ourselves in a difficult place with Brexit, is trying to lead some of our European allies and friends towards taking responsibility for their own defence and therefore security. I mean, essentially, I mean, America has not abandoned us, and that was never what they said. But I think they quite rightly said, you know, you own this. Uh, you know, you are responsible for your own defence and security. And I'm not quite sure that that message has quite got through to uh, all of the chancelleries of Europe yet. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB Radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription. To get that, go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. Mm-hmm.